Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julia Heinle. I'm the publishing assistant at NIAS Press and a master's student of political science at the University of Copenhagen. We are recording a very special episode today, where my boss and editor-in-chief of NIAS Press, Gerald Jackson, is here with us. Gerald has celebrated his 30th publishing anniversary in January this year and is joining us today to talk on a range of experiences, insights, do's and don'ts in the publishing field. I'm very excited for our conversation lying ahead and first want to welcome you, Gerald. It's very nice to have you with us today. Thank you. Gerald, you first came to NIAS in January of 1993 on a six-month contract to establish a professional publishing program at the Institute. The contract was renewed again and again. Now, 30 years later, NIAS Press is well known for its books on Asia, and it is the only surviving scholarly press in Europe specializing in the field of Asian studies. Since 1993, NIAS has published the books of maybe a thousand scholars working in this field, all of them closely working with you. Can you walk us through what has happened since you started at NIAS back then in 1993? Well, yeah. When I arrived, the publishing had been going since 1969. So it was a long long history of it, but it had been a part-time operation run by one researcher and he was mainly doing his research but on the side he was doing a little bit of publishing so as you say what was aimed was to professionalize and to expand the publishing operation especially because the point was to promote nordic asia research into the wider world this was a big learning curve for all of us we began For about a decade, we were working with a small British company that had, in fact, been working with Nias right from the early 70s. But in this period in the 90s, it had been taken over by another person and it expanded rapidly. And with a lot of support from Nias, it became, in fact, the biggest Asian studies publisher in the world. We were a crucial part of that whole transformation. In 2001, though, everything crashed. Why was that? It's basically where a company expands too fast, and then suddenly it's like running on air. It's run out of money, it's still going, and then suddenly it crashes. And this sort of is what happened. So we had to rapidly do something about it. And the course we took was to set up a fully-fledged publishing house at the Institute. So instead of working with this British company who did all the printing and all the marketing and a whole lot of stuff like this, we took on all of that stuff. So we expanded our activities a lot. At the same time, we were actually still producing a lot of books. And doing other stuff like doing a magazine four times a year. Yeah. 
It's been a huge adventure. It only happened because we developed a family, if you like, of international partners, mainly of publishers or distribution companies and that, so that we develop a global marketing and sales network. In fact, I don't think there is a Danish publisher that has extensive international network as we do. The Nordic thing, it came to be that probably only 40% of our authors continued to be Nordic as we became more and more global. But the whole point of it still was that we were giving those Nordic authors international prominence. But yes, we became a global publisher, not simply some small operation in Copenhagen. That, in a sense, is the trajectory of where we went. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So as part of your own job, which aspect do you like the most as editor-in-chief? You already named that ES Press has taken on all the activities in the publishing after this transition in 2001. So for you as a person, which aspect do you like the most? The long grind of producing a book, which has got maybe a hundred something steps. <laughs> I would say that that is my favorite thing. The job requires that things happen and they happen when they should happen and all that sort of stuff. That's not my favorite. I'd say a few things. One, the buzz I get when somebody comes with a new idea. So you wake up in the morning, you think you're going to be doing this, and an email drops into your inbox with some book proposal, and you sort of go, wow, I've never thought of looking at the world in this way. Mm -hmm. And something like that happens. Or somebody says, can you urgently do something such for, you know, and you that sort of thing. Another is that, for instance, at conferences, being a hustler. So although I'm actually quite a shy person in some ways, mm -hmm. in sort of a conference situation where you have, say, quarter an hour coffee break, and you've got all these scholars standing around talking, but you've got three of them wanting to talk to you at the same time, and you know you've got to talk to each of them for five minutes, you've got to work out what they're actually proposing. Does it work for you? Or should, in fact, they be talking to somebody else? Because part of our thing also is not just to think about what's good for us, mm -hmm. but we have to think on what's good for the author. So that hassle is really good. But in the general thing, there's two things I enjoy, and they're just silly things. I enjoy drawing maps. Sometimes I will draw maps for authors, and that's sort of And I usually do it in my own time, and it's a source of relaxation. Also, sometimes I take on a layout job, laying out one of our books. And that is almost a karma type thing, that you have to lay out a book. It can be very tedious, but at the same time, it's very, very relaxing in some ways. You can switch off and focus on the form of the thing, that it works, that the design works, and so on and so forth. Those are the things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there's others. <laughs> Working with you, Julia, is always a pleasure, but that's beside the point. Oh, well, this also uh, applies for me. <laughs> What can I say? But coming back to sort of the process of publishing, you mentioned already now that 
you enjoy when authors send a proposal to you or when they want to talk to you and approach you on conferences. And you also talked about layouting and hundred steps in the publishing process. But what are sort of the main big thresholds that one goes until a book is actually being published? The different steps, you mean? Yeah, the, the big... like the big steps that one go from the idea of a book until the actual hard copy that uh, one gets to hold in the hand or the book that I can see. I mean, the whole beginning of a research project of actually conceptualizing a book often happens long before we ever talk to an author, but that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But then the, the steps usually are, you know, very briefly, something is assessed. So something can come in and be assessed and rejected in 10 minutes, or it could be going through a whole lengthy peer review process and that sort of thing. But there's that assessment after that, the whole production process, which I break down into, you know, first the whole editing of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And often that involves rewriting and doing all sorts of stuff. But when we have a final text, final images, and so on and so forth, the actual producing the form of the book and its different formats, and then actually getting it out there. But at the same time, as you know, Julia, in your own job, there is that other side where authors think that all they've got to do is write a book and hand it over and the job is done. <laughs> when in fact the job is only starting because the child has to come out into the world and be heard. So the authors play an incredibly important role there as if you like mothers of their book to actually have the world hear that yeah. piece of research. So promotion is incredibly important. And there, of course, in there is not just, you know, things like which journals you're sending it to, is it going to be book launches, but the cover matters. Yeah, there's a whole lot of different things that matter there. Very nicely said with that metaphor on the mother and the child. Do you think this is sort of a particularity for the field of East and Southeast Asian studies specifically, or would you say this is more of a universal rule, regardless of whether this concerns academic publishing or non-academic publishing? In many ways, it would be universal, but area studies is different than disciplinary studies. In fact, if I could be controversial, I would say that a lot of disciplinary studies, people might look down upon area studies. So guess what I would say is, in a way, it's a different way of looking at things. And that does affect, I think, how things are published. So a country, if you think of a country like, should we say, Thailand, a country to understand it, and if you like even to love it, requires using your senses in many different ways, using a wide palette of intellectual approaches. So a country may be a history, it may be a music, it may be culture, it's politics, religion, social values, a whole lot of stuff. Whereas, for instance, if you're dealing in, say, mathematical theory, there are also nuances, but I think in a different way. So in that way, I would argue that the area of studies publishing that I've been involved in has the potential to call on a whole lot of different approaches. And I might be a bit 
I'm certain that there will be people, say, working in political science publishing who would say this isn't true at all. But that is my perspective anyway, that although it doesn't have that same academic kudos area studies, in my opinion, it has a lot to offer in many different ways. And we've been proud to work in that field. Mm -hmm. You can most certainly draw on a range of experience there. You spent over 30 years in the field of academic publishing and area studies, looking forward or sort of looking, turning to the future and looking back at the same time. What were sort of major developments or what would you say, how has the field of academic publishing and area studies changed over the last 30 years? The internet. When I first started in this business, there was no internet that we knew of. There were no emails. We were sending faxes. You know, our books, there were printers, but our books, we produced them, laid out onto A4 sheets of paper, and they were sent to England. And these women had scissors, and they cut them up onto these huge sheets of paper, 16 sheets to you know, one of these things. and they were then filmed and a whole other, all that's gone. So everything is digital. A whole lot of people who worked in publishing don't work there anymore. So a lot of the people who did editing, who did layout, who did proofreading, yeah, there's a whole lot of different skills that was inside publishing has gone. Mm. Most. And what we have instead in a sense, is a gig economy where you have a lot of people who are either contracted or at least the work is outsourced from somewhere around the world. You have the growth of a lot of big beast companies in publishing. At the same time, you have, because of the internet, a lot more possibility for what I would call insurgent publishers, small operations to actually start up, to focus in a small area, and to actually thrive there. So it's very different. It's a bit scary at times. We also see you know, in our area that libraries are buying less books. Library budgets are being swallowed by IT costs. Mm. So they are cutting the number of journals they hold, or they're only buying digital, and they're definitely slashing the number of books. So the number of copies of a book where before, when I started in the business, you might expect 2,000 copies. And it was always talked about you know, when I was beginning, oh, yes, hardbacks, you would sell 2,000 hardbacks. Nowadays, you might sell, if you were lucky, 50 hardbacks. Yeah. Okay? So all of that has changed. You also have content is no longer just paper. It is, in fact, you know, the book has become, in a sense, to many people, an artifact. Instead, they are consuming content. Also, as I said, that those huge sheets of paper have disappeared, and what you have instead is what we call print-on-demand. In other words, instead of you having several hundred books in a workshop, when warehouse you might have one copy and an order comes in and that goes out and another is printed, this sort of thing. I think those are the those are the things. There's other things I could talk about, but I may be getting ahead of myself. One of the challenges, I could say, of the future 
yeah. looking at that is where in the past you might concern yourself about plagiarism. The more I hear about it, and I've just come back from the London Book Fair and some of the stuff I was listening to there, the whole thing with artificial intelligence is quite freaky. For instance, I was reading this morning before I came to work. This week's Economist has actually got a whole thing on AI, and they were mentioning that a PhD thesis from memory had been generated by AI and got a 90% pass rate. Wow. So, you know, this has a lot of implications, not just for publishing, but also for scholarship. Yeah, they were referring to AI in terms of JTBT or just general AI? They were referring to AI across the broad spectrum okay. of things, but they were mentioning this where a scholarly work was generated by AI. This is a very different world than it was 30 years ago, definitely. Yeah. So speaking about challenges, what would you recommend in these times of digitalization, artificial intelligence, print-on-demand books to prospective authors on how to go about their ambitions to publish their research? Because I'm sure there are some that listen here or that uh, are listening to our interview, so... I guess there's two things that occurred to me. One of them is that when I look all over the place, I can see that the university world is under a lot of stress. And I don't think the academic life is anywhere as fulfilling in some ways as it was 30 years ago. I may be wrong, but the stress that I can see that it's definitely a harder life. <laughs> so One of the things I would just say is be strategic, especially when you're thinking about getting published, be strategic. It's a balance, I know, but in some ways to focus on something that you think will work for you, something you want to do, obviously, but something that will work for you, that will help your career and so on and so forth. Don't think about it in terms of just producing this article or this book or something, but think of your research. How could it be communicated across a range of forms that helps you, but also gets your research out there? But at the same time, it's a balance because you can't be banging on about the same thing and they say oh that's just julia on and on and on about the same old thing that she always said. so you have to be careful there too but that's one thing the other is that i'd say that i have this thing i talk about k1 the old days i talked about that there was this k50 rule that if within 50 pages you hadn't got a reader to get hooked by your book they wouldn't finish it And I argue that today, thanks to Steve Jobs and the iPhone, that our attention span is down to the first page. If you cannot grab the reader on the first page, there is a great danger that you will, your book will not be, or your article, or whatever it is, that the reader will not finish it. So there's so many demands on our attention, all of us, can we afford to spend so many hours or days reading something that's just going on and on and on. So grab them by the throat on the first page. Okay. Grab them by the throat on K1 rule, so to say. 
Sarah, you've also written a book yourself on actually how to get published. That book was published in 2011. Is your K1 rule included in that as well, or is this a recent update? I think that's more recent. I don't think social media was hadn't had such an impact back mm. then. So no, the whole thing, the shift of content to being something that is independent of form, that is even more extreme than it was. So that's why I'm saying that you should not focus just on getting published in that journal or in that book or something. Think of it that you're communicating information in different ways over different formats. Mm. That is more that is more new from um, that period, definitely. Yeah. So when you speak of different formats, does this also include formats beyond text, so to say? I would yeah. argue so. Yeah. I could be frivolous and say you could break into poetry or song, but <laughs> I don't think that would necessarily help your credibility as a scholar. So part of the issue there is that the world or the authorities that assess scholars has not moved with the times. So there are a lot of ways that scholars may communicate that will not get counted when that research is evaluated. Mm. So that is a problem. So you get these research assessment exercises where they say so many points for an article from a list A journal and so many points for a book from a list B publisher or whatever. And you know, they have all this thing and you get this score, but they don't count that maybe this has been also downloaded 10,000 times of that B platform mm. that may not be counted. So there's a whole sea change in how that scholarship is being viewed or listened to or whatever, yeah. Looking at these developments, Gerald, there is talk about you retiring this year. Are you welcoming this change in your life or how do you stand towards this era that might be coming to an end? Yep. When I was in London at the book fair and I was walking around I realized quite a lot that was going on. You know, these people are all energetically pitching deals to each other or whatever. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? I think I've had enough of this. So I thought, yeah, I'm happy to continue being involved with Nears Press into the future, some sort of casual way or some sort of part-time way. But I can see that I've got better things to do. I have research and writing I wish to do. And I wish to also get forward doing things like that and working with other people in other areas of life. So, yes, there will be still continuing with some of this academic publishing and the wider world of, you know, I enjoy going to a conference and mingling with people. But there's other things I want to do too. Yeah. So looking at the clock, we are almost close to the end of our interview now. So I want to ask... If I may, if you want to share, <laughs> what other projects will you personally have in mind that you pursue after you've left big yes press, what to say? I'm into more lower class interests, perhaps, to some people. But as I sort of briefly mentioned, I've been doing writing. I've essentially finished a 
428-page book, and the other one is, I think, up to about page 300 or something. But they are local social history family focus, and it's involved a lot of research, a lot of working with people, doing a lot of the things that, in fact, the authors I've worked with over the years have been doing. But doing something that I want to do, and the next step is... I'm looking to also take a lot of my publishing experiences over the years and those skills and also apply them in this new area offering other people who are not academics but who are wanting to communicate their research and wanting to provide services to those people. And um, yeah, so that's the next couple of projects I'm working on. Nice. Well, how can we make sure to be able to follow you in that regard? Will you keep the Twitter account or shall people just contact you over your email address? What would, what um, would your suggestion be? Hmm, I don't know. I have a, a private website, but I have not, if I'm honest, part of publishing that I have been less good at and less interested in has been that promotional side. And that is why having people like you doing your magic has been important. So I'm not good at doing that sort of stuff for my own things. So things like Facebook and all that, I sort of... Yeah. Uh, so I have to learn to do more of this, I know. So that will be another challenge for the future too. But yeah. as of this moment, I'm not going to give away any contact details. <laughs> Very good. Well, then maybe we can say to our listeners that <laughs> we will teach each other. So before you go, I'll make sure that we'll provide some news on the website or so. On yeah, yeah. Whether maybe you want to revive your blog or something like that, but there will definitely be a way um, to follow you. Yeah. Okay. That being said, Gerald, I want to thank you for this very joyful interview. It was super interesting to listen to your insightful insights and experiences and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Julia Heinle and I've been talking to Gerald Jackson, editor-in-chief of NIAS Press. <laughs> You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.